Welcome to the Renaissance Church Podcast. Our mission is to glorify God and to make disciples by bringing the gospel into all of life in all the earth. This is Chris Kipp, lead pastor of Renaissance Church here in Richmond, Texas. And if you've not joined us in a worship gathering or at a house church yet, we would love to have you join us. You can find out more information at rin-church.org. And I pray that you are encouraged and edified by the proclamation of God's word today. We are ending our Awe of God series. It's the last week, six weeks that we've been looking at the, the fear of the Lord throughout the series. And we've been following along in this book, The Awe of God by John Bevere. It's devotional. It's been fantastic. And we are in the last section and we, just to remind you of all the things that we've covered, in week one, we talked about moving from fear to fear. In week two, uh, Jason taught on living near great fear. Week three, we talked about the awe in our insecurities. Week four, we talked about trembling at his word. Last week, we talked about the friendship and the fear. If you missed any of those, we have a podcast you can go online and find our podcast. And anywhere that you listen to podcasts, search Renaissance Church and you will find it. You can catch up with us there. In these last two weeks, I said this last week, we're looking at the dessert. I mean, this is like, if last week was the cake, this week we're going to put some icing on the cake. I mean, these are beautiful things that we're going to be looking at. And it's the, the promises that come with the fear of the Lord. And uh, I, I've called this message blessings upon blessings, blessings upon blessings. We're going to see the promises of God that are attached to the awe of God today. And uh, growing up, my, my parents uh, both office in the same building. So my dad is an architect and my mom is a blueprinter. That worked very well, okay? He would draw the plans and she would duplicate them for builders. And so they, had, they were in the same office. And so I remember their office as a kid walking into there. And I always thought that was so cool. Kids, you know, if you go to work with mom or dad, it's, it's cool to go into their space. And I remember going into my mom's uh, front like desk area and she had this thing called a Rolodex. Does anybody remember the Rolodex? I mean, this thing, you know, you spin it and it's got all these papers and it's all handwritten, right? And it's like, you just hope somebody has good handwriting or the seven is not a one or a one's not a seven, right? right? And, and so it's all handwritten, you know, there's stuff stapled into it and sticky notes in there. And it was kind of a mess, right? It's before we had all the stuff, you know, in our pocket on our phone, you would have this alphabetized spinny thing called the Rolodex. In fact, you can still buy these online. I don't know if you need a Rolodex, you can go to amazon.com and maybe you want to go analog again, okay? And I remember this Rolodex and, and this morning, what we're doing is we're, we're looking at Psalm 112. If you have a copy of scripture, want to turn there with me, Psalm 112. And it's just like a Rolodex of promises that are attached to the fear of the Lord. And I, I want to look at six promises today. There are more. I mean, we, we could go a whole nother six weeks of just promises attached to the fear of the Lord. But this Psalm is full of them. And in fact, there's more than six in the Psalm, but we don't have time to cover all the ones that are in here. I mean, it's just rich with promises. 
And it's the blessings upon blessings that come from fearing the Lord. And I hope that in some way today, this will encourage you as you seek to grow in the awe of God, the fear of the Lord. And as we read it, I just want to remind you of what the Apostle Paul wrote to his protege, Timothy. And he said to, said to him that all scripture is God-breathed. It's God-breathed. It's profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and for training in righteousness so that the man or the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, okay? So as, as we just open our eyes to this, this passage, I just want to remind you that this is, this is God-breathed word for you, all right? Psalm 112, verse 1 Hallelujah, exclamation point. Happy is the person who fears the Lord, taking great delight in his commands. His descendants will be powerful in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light shines in the darkness for the upright he is gracious, compassionate, and righteous. Good will come to the one who lends generously and conducts his business fairly. He will never be shaken. The righteous one will be remembered forever. He will not fear bad news. His heart is confident, trusting in the Lord. His heart is assured he will not fear. In the end, he will look in triumph on his foes. He distributes freely to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted in honor. The wicked one will see it and be angry. He will gnash his teeth in despair. The desire of the wicked leads to ruin. This is the word of the Lord. So here we have him beginning with this the person who fears the Lord. And then we have all these promises that come from this fear of the Lord. And, and this is not even the most ex exhaustive place, but I just want to look at six things that come out of this passage. And the first is found at the very beginning. Hallelujah. Happy is the person who fears the Lord. Does anybody want happiness in their life? I mean, come on. Let's just be honest. We all desire happiness in our life. And here we see he uses this word happiness and your translation might say blessed, blessed, which means how happy, how happy, how happy is the person who fears the Lord. And here's the thing is it says how happy is. It doesn't say how happy will be. Right? How happy is, and it says this about that person, that they take great delight in his commands. That there's this delightfulness in the Lord. That there's, if you, if you, if you know Jesus, and he's changing your heart, and you're opening up his word, and you're just, you're like, oh, this is so good. It's like there's a delightfulness in, and it makes you happy now. Happy is the person who fears the Lord. You see, without the awe of God, 
all these commands of God, they become duty. They become maybe dread. They become dry. <laughs> they become a downer sometimes. But when we have the awe of God and we see the word of God, there's something about it that even when it corrects us or rebukes us or challenges us, there's something delightful in it. There's a delightfulness in these commands. It, and it, it connects this idea of happiness with the fear of the Lord. Um, a while back, I was listening to a podcast and there was a guy by the name of Keith Ganida. I, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. He has a ministry in the Philippines for trafficking. And, and human trafficking is off the charts you know, in the Philippines. And he takes believers into these, this area in the Philippines. And he said there are probably 12,000 girls being sold along one stretch of road in the Philippines. Tourists everywhere, clubs everywhere, music's blaring, everyone is drinking and dancing, and, and, and almost like you would think that everyone's having a good time. And he said that um, whenever they take these believers, he said, we spend you know, a lot of time in, in prayer together and in worship together. Because he said, we have to be full of the Holy Spirit when we walk into these places because you need to see like Jesus sees, right? And he takes these people into there. And I'll never forget what he said. In this setting where you would think that everyone would be so joyful, he said, everyone is miserable, and, and, and I, I, the phrase was this, only Satan can build a kingdom where everyone is miserable. That phrase stuck with me. You see, there's these ideas about happiness in our culture. And it, unhappiness in our culture means that in some way, the people around you are not okaying your choices. And if that happens, you're unhappy, okay? And what I wanna to say to us is maybe it's our choices that are making us unhappy, not whether people are okaying or not okaying our choices. And I say that with grace, with grace and gentleness because it, there's this idea that Christians are, are hateful because they don't embrace everything that's out there or every lifestyle that's out there or, or that they're oppressive. But I want to remind you that there is an oppressor. There is. His name is Satan. And he loves to oppress people. He, his plan for us is oppression. The scripture says that he comes to steal, kill, destroy. And whenever someone in our lives that we love chooses things that are like away from God and you feel a pressure of like, I have to endorse, I have to, I have to bless, I have to condone because if I don't, they're gonna be what? Unhappy. And sometimes I've heard this line of reasoning. People say, look, if you don't, they're gonna be so unhappy that they might become suicidal. And now all of a sudden you're like, I'm complicit in the suicide of another person. Like, there is one who wants people to commit suicide. 
It's the oppressor. And so as people who, who understand that, how happy is the person who fears the Lord? That when we love someone and we fear the Lord, we are contending for their ultimate happiness and we are gently, graciously pointing them towards truth because we want them to truly be happy. Happiness comes from this fear of the Lord, the awe of God. The first one, let's flip the Rolodex one more time. The second thing he says in verse two, he says, his descendants will be powerful in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. The second thing that he's, he attaches to this fear of the Lord is a godly legacy. Now, I am a parent, and, and some, some of you are parents in here. Many of you are parents. Maybe you're a grandparent. And, and I'm just going to guess that you would love to have a godly legacy, right? We, we would love that. The, this word descendants, it literally means our seed, our offspring, our, our kids, our children, and it says, them, it says this about them, that they will be powerful, powerful in the land. That word is strong, it's mighty, it's brave. And I, I remember whenever Will, our firstborn, was born, somebody gave us this book, and it was called Will the Mighty Warrior. Will, I don't even know if you recall this, and we would read this book, Will the Mighty Warrior, right? And it was that word mighty. He's using this word that they would be strong, powerful in the land. Um, it, it's a picture of generational blessing. And we find this in, in the second commandment. And, and God says to them, do not make an idol for yourself. You, you, you probably remember the Big Ten and he says, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth, do not bow and worship to them and do not serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generations. So here we see that there were generational iniquities, what we would call a generational curse passed down from family line, the father's iniquity. But then he says this, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. I bet some of you are here today because someone in your family feared the Lord. There was an awe of God in them. They loved the Lord. They feared him. They honored him with their lives. They loved his commands. And you're here today. There, there's been a passing of the baton to you because of their faithfulness to God. There's a, an illustration that John Bevere shares. And I thought that was, this was so, uh, it's interesting. It's on page 237. And he's talking about this, this generational blessing and he says, a great example of this is found in the lives of two men, both born early in the 18th century. The first is Max Jukes. And in 1874, a sociologist named Richard Dugdale visited 13 county jails in upstate New York. 
he discovered six persons under four different family names that were blood relatives. So they were all kin, okay? And this sparked curiosity and led him to a deep dive of the family line. It led back to an early Dutch settler named Max Jukes, who was born somewhere between 1720 and 1740. After years of diligent research, Dugdale identified 540 relatives or descendants of Jukes. And among these 540, there were 76 convicted criminals, 18 brothel keepers, 120 prostitutes, and over 200 government relief recipients. In short, there were generational sins that led to an abundance of dysfunctional behavior, and it cost the government tens of millions of dollars in today's currency value. Wow. Now, he compares him to another name that you'll know, Jonathan Edwards. Born during the same time period, he was a revivalist who authored numerous books and inspired many to take the gospel to the nations. He was married to Sarah Pierpont in 1727. This couple greatly feared God. They read the Bible, prayed together every night before retreating. They had 11 children. Oh, 11 children. And Jonathan prayed a blessing over each child daily. And Jonathan Edwards said, every house should be a little church. And of their 1,394 known descendants, they found 13 college or university presidents, 65 college or university professors, three U.S. senators, 30 judges, 100 lawyers, 60 physicians, 75 army and navy officers, 100 ministers and missionaries, 60 authors of prominence, and one vice president of the United States of America. And it says their offspring didn't cost the government one penny. Now that's crazy. If you look at generational curses or generational blessings, if you're a parent in here, I know that I know that I know that you want to see your children blessed by God. You want to see the baton pass from you to the next generation to that next generation. And the promise says that if you fear the Lord, that there, there will be a godly legacy. Let's turn it one more time. The third, provision. Does anyone need God's provision? Christmas is coming. Just raise both hands right now. Jesus, Lord, right? No. We need God's provision, don't we? And here's what he says in verse 3. Wealth and riches are in his house. And his righteousness endures forever. Light shines in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, compassionate, and righteous. Good will come to the one who lends generously and conducts his business fairly. He's talking about material possessions. Now, you and I know that there is more than one way to be wealthy. Amen? Right? 
There's more than one way to be rich. But that word wealth in the Hebrew, it carries this idea of enough. Enough. And that word riches, as I dug into it, it literally just means riches, which means this, material provision. Now, I know because of the climate that we live in, whenever you start talking about money in church, everyone kind of gets a little nervous. And they kind of like, oh, is this one of those prosperity theology churches? Like, oh my gosh, what's going on here? Okay, I did not write the scripture. I read the scripture. And it tells us that when we fear the Lord, we can expect God to provide for us. It is a promise from the Lord, okay? It's a promise. It tells us something about this person, and here's what's so important, is the fear of the Lord has to shape how we use our finances. It says this, the person who fears the Lord is generous and they are ethical. Meaning when whatever you have, that you're using it in a way that is generous and it is ethical. Meaning you will not do wrong to secure more provision because you know ultimately the Lord is my provider, right? And it says in verse nine that that, that person distributes freely to the poor. Meaning that there's just, there's an open handedness about this kind of a person who fears the Lord and understands that God is their provider. And when we make decisions with our money about the, you know, as, with the fear of the Lord as our grid, we become generous, we become honest, and we become ethical. And the outcome is the Lord's provision, right? For some of us, that will be just enough at just the right time. For others of you, you may be blessed with an overabundance. And guess what? Whether you have just enough at just the right time or you have an overabundance of provision, both of us are called to be stewards who are steward under the awe of God and the fear of the Lord. We can expect God's provision when we're honoring him. Isn't that a good promise? That's a blessing. The fourth thing, he says this in verse six. He says, he will never be shaken. The righteous one will be remembered forever. In verse nine, it says that his righteousness endures forever. And and there's this phrase that I'll use, and it's this eternal impact. And there's a couple ways that we could use that phrase, meaning that you're going to share the gospel and it's going to impact the eternity of a person. But what he's talking about here is that there are things that we do in this life that will matter in the life that's coming. How many of you have seen Gladiator, the old movie Gladiator, right? Oh, it's good. Kids, you, maybe you shouldn't watch it yet. It's like, talk to your parents about that, right? Well, we, we might have to do like a gladiator day soon, okay? It's, it's fantastic, right? And there's this phrase that he uses. He's, he's running his hand over the wheat that's blowing in the wind, right? And he says, um, I, wrote it, I wrote this down because I didn't want to forget this. Oh, yeah, yeah. What we do in life echoes in eternity. And he says it with that like cool voice, right? What we do in life echoes in eternity. Here's what he's saying in this passage is that what we do in our lives, it echoes in eternity. 
it, you know this, we are not saved by our works. Absolutely not. But when we are saved by the grace of God and that grace gets down into us and it begins to change our hearts and now we begin to live out of this grace and we, we begin to do things that are good and it says this, that our righteousness will be remembered forever. That, there's, that there are rewards that God gives to his people as they're honoring him with their lives. When the fear of the Lord begins to change us and we honor him, that those echo into eternity. And, and I don't think we can comprehend that yet. I, I really don't. I, I think of the letters to the churches in, in the book of Revelation in chapter two and three. And in each one, in each church, the, the Lord gives both an encouragement and he gives them a warning. And at the end of the warning, if you, if you follow each one, he says something like, to the one who overcomes, to the one who conquers, I will give. And it's like, you know, a, a new name or or, or some other blessing that's like, I don't even know what that means yet. But there are things that come to us in the next life because of the fear of the Lord in this life that we can actually expect God's blessings to continue beyond the grave. It's amazing. All right, let's flip it one more time. The fifth one. This is beautiful. Confidence confidence. Here's what he says. Verse uh, 7. He will not fear bad news. Is there bad news going on in the world right now? Every stinking day. He will not fear bad news. His heart is confident, trusting in the Lord. His heart is assured. He will not fear. In the end, he will look in triumph on his foes. He connects confidence to the fear of the Lord. Now, we've been talking about this a lot throughout the series of how the, the fear of God displaces our other fears. Right? We talked about our insecurities, that the fear of God displaces insecurities in our life, that there's something about kind of getting our fears in the right order. Like when the fear of the Lord is here, it's like all these begin to sort of lessen in our lives. And I think the classic example for us is what I always think of is Jesus in the boat when the storm comes. And you, you probably know the story of Jesus, the, 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 the big squall comes, they're in the boat, it's, it's the disciples and Jesus, apparently it's a, it's a boat that has like a lower section, and you know, the boat's starting to rock, the winds are blowing, the disciples are starting to freak out, right? And Jesus is feeling a nap. That's what Jesus is doing. He's like, I just, there's something about the rocking of the boat, maybe he's just like, this is so, so nice, right? And everyone is losing their minds, and Jesus is napping. God bless nappers, right? Have you ever been to a shopping mall and there's a grown man napping on the couch? Isn't that amazing? I always envy that guy. I'm like, this guy is not worried about anything. <laughs> he's not afraid. I, I was in the, um, the waiting room when Will had his ankle surgery, and there was a man. God bless this man. He, uh, everything he did was loud. His ringer was set to like 5,000 decibels. 
and it has some terrible ringer sound. And he's like, hello? <laughs> and then as soon as he would hang up the phone, he would lay back and he would fall asleep and he would snore so loud <laughs> that the whole waiting room is looking at each other and we're just laughing. We're like, oh my gosh, this is great. I mean, God bless nappers. I love nappers. They're not worried about anything. Jesus is napping, okay? I just love that picture. It's a picture for us of a heart that is at ease, a heart that is confident. And Jesus knew that day was not his day. Guys, today's not my day. My day's coming, but my, this is not my day. We're going to be just fine. And whenever they wake him, they're like, don't you care that we're about to die? Right? Dramatic disciples. And he rebukes the wind, and it goes calm. And the wonder of God fills their hearts like, oh. And he says, why were you so afraid? Why were you so afraid? That there's, there's a confidence that comes from this awe of God. And, and when the disciples were reeling, Jesus was resting. There's this concept that I've been reading about, hearing about, and I think it's the, it's the future of the church, and it's called non-anxious presence. Have you heard that term before, non-anxious presence? I don't know if you've read the prophecies concerning the last days, but it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. But the worst of days are the best of days for the kingdom of God. And what we need to form as the followers of Jesus is napping in the storm. Non-anxious presence, that there's, there's a deeper confidence that we can find a, a, a more solid footing than all the craziness that's happening in the world right now. And that when, every, when everyone's reeling, that there's gonna be people who have found the rest of Jesus and we're going to lead the way. We're going to lead the way, not because we're freaking out like everyone else, but because we've actually learned how to rest in Jesus. I believe that's such a word for the church, a confidence. You know, we live in a fear-filled a fear -filled world, and of course, we have every news story is like fear-based because fear makes us like click on things and watch things, right? And so they, they sort of bait us with fear. So there's just this fear thing happening. But you know, there's another aspect of the fear-filled world that I don't think that we're talking about. And it's the effect of radical individualism. I remember seeing, when I was young, someone illustrate the bed of nails. Have you all seen that before when they, they have like a balloon and they have one nail and they put the balloon on the one nail and what happens? It pops, right? Good, thank you. And then you have a bed of nails, so like every inch or every square inch, there's a nail and, and, and you, know, you put the balloon on and it doesn't pop. And, or if you've actually had one that you've laid down on and you're like, oh, this is gonna hurt. And then you lay down on the bed of nails and you're like, it's actually not that bad, right? And I was thinking about this, that um, radical individualism, it makes everyone a nail by itself, right? 
but we were built for community. We were built for family. We were built to be like that bed of nails that whenever the pressures come, the pressures are spread out over the entire community. They don't bear down on one person. And so things don't break down so badly. And so as people who walk with God and who grow in community, there's something about this joining together that, that's like this illustration of surface area and pressure. It's like we're spreading out that load together so that we can actually become more confident, more stable, more firm, more fearless in the face of a fear-filled world. It's confidence. It's stability. It's firmness. It's, it's to be established, to, to be not shaken, right? It's this confidence. One more turn. And I'll argue all of these are connected to this last promise. And it's the one thing that I was like, oh, I've got to talk about this. And it's not in this passage, but it's in the verse right above this passage in Psalm 111, verse 10. And here's what it says. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his instructions have good insight. His praise endures forever. Now, that's a phrase that's repeated all over your Bible. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That word beginning is the very same word used in Genesis chapter 1, and it begins like this, in the beginning. It's the, the origin it's the starting place, the origin point of wisdom. The starting place of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. It's the awe of God. And this, this word wisdom, it's skill, it's shrewdness, it's good judgment, good sense, it's discernment. It's the ability to govern and discipline oneself by the use of of reason. And if we've ever needed wisdom, boy, we need wisdom right now. We, we need wisdom right now. And he says that it begins with the fear of the Lord. John Bevere shares it this way. I think this is beautiful. He says, picture it like this. Consider a storehouse full of all the wisdom you need for enduring success. Right? This, this massive Amazon warehouse, and it is filled with every wisdom you could ever need for enduring success. But there's only one door, and there's only one key. You can only access it one way. Holy fear. Holy fear. And this fear of the Lord, it leads us to wisdom by taking all of those other fears. Like you, you know that fear makes us do silly things, right? When you're afraid, you get really hasty. You get really panicky. You start rushing around. You get this idea of scarcity. Oh my gosh. There's not going to be enough. You just get all this panic that starts to build in your heart. And then you start doing silly things. And when we begin to elevate the fear of the Lord, no, 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 no. Okay, the Lord is my provider. He's going to show me what to do. He's the giver of wisdom. He created wisdom. He created good judgment. Surely God's going to give me that. And we begin to change our understanding about what to fear. And all the panic can kind of just subside. And all of a sudden, what emerges is wisdom. You make better decisions. 
So we have this Rolodex of blessings upon blessings. We have happiness, godly legacy, provision, eternal impact, confidence, and wisdom. And all of this is for the person who fears the Lord. So if you don't fear the Lord, well, I don't, there's no promise for you. But as I was thinking about that list, and I was thinking about my life, actually, I did the math last night. I've been walking with Jesus for 28 years. I know you probably think I'm only 28 years old, but I'm a little older than that. 28 years. And as I was thinking about those promises in all of the seasons of life, the hardships, the struggles, the tragedies, every single one of those promises has been tested. And there have been lots of times where I thought, I don't know if that's true. Like, God, I, maybe that's sort of like a, a generality, but it's not for me. Because I don't know what to do right now. Or I'm not sure about my kids right now. Or I don't know where the next income is going to come from right now. And what I've seen is I've doubted, and then I've seen God move, and then I've doubted again, and then I've seen God move, and I've doubted again. <laughs> and it keeps, it keeps being tested in my life. And so as we read those, some of you are like, I don't know about that. And so if that's you, I, I just want to end with a few words. Because godly people sometimes feel unhappy. Godly people have kids who go astray. Godly people face financial hardships. Godly people feel overwhelmed by fear sometimes. And godly people sometimes make unwise decisions. And so I, I, I think there's three things I want to point us to. There's two ways to read the Bible. The first one is that everything's about me. Every promise is for me. Everything's about me, God. Thank you. The other way is to read it as though everything is about Jesus. What God has promised, Jesus has purchased. What God has promised, Jesus has purchased. Here's what I mean. You haven't feared the Lord perfectly, have you? If you have, praise God, I have not. I have not had a sufficient awe of the Lord that is, it's perfect and it's like watertight and every time, wow, he was right there, he feared the Lord perfectly. No, that's not my story. I have grown and this series is about growing in the fear of the Lord. But there is one who feared the Lord perfectly and his name is Jesus. And Jesus feared the Lord perfectly because he knew you wouldn't. And then he laid down his life for you to pay for every time that you've not feared the Lord 
And Paul says this. He says, are the promises of God yes and no? Surely not. They are yes and they are amen in Jesus Christ. So if you are in Christ, you are in the one who has feared the Lord perfectly, and you can look at a list of promises, and you can say, ah, I don't know. Okay, through you, Jesus, I can receive the promise. What God has promised, Jesus has purchased. The second thing is this. What Jesus has purchased, I can possess. Okay. I was thinking uh, about this. When Casey and I got married, we went on a honeymoon, and we went to one of those all-inclusive resorts, right? And it was great because there's no wallet, there's no keys, there's no nothing. You just have like this little room key, and as long as you have this thing on your wrist, you can have whatever you want. It's glorious. And so you go into whatever restaurant is there on the premises, and you just walk in. And you have a little thing on your wrist, and you're like, what do you want? And what if I said, I'll just take the little saltines that are here on the table, and do you have any ketchup packets? Because that's, I mean, that's all I need. I'll survive, right? I'm hardcore. No, no, no. It's like, what is the most expensive thing on this menu? Because we've already paid for this. So like, I, I might have two. I don't know, because I was in my 20s, and I could eat a lot more back then. But... The point is this, you've already paid for it. And my point to you is that Jesus has already paid for this. And I often pray, Lord, I want everything that you've purchased for me. I read about the gifts of the Spirit. God, I want everything that you've purchased for me. I don't know what all those are yet for me, but Lord, I want every single thing that you have for me because you've already paid for them. Is it the shame or is it generational curses? Lord, you paid to pull me out of that bondage. I want everything you've paid for. When you look at your kids and you see a promise like that and you're like, really, God? Really? Here's, here's the thing. If I ain't dead yet, he ain't done yet. Amen? And here's the third statement. I can confidently pray what the scriptures say. There are, there are processes that come with promises. And every promise typically has a process with it. I wish it was magic wand Christianity where it's like, and you get a car, and you get a car. You, you know, it's like, but every process has a, I mean, every promise has a process, meaning that sometimes there's, there's, the struggle, the suffering, the things that Jesus warned us about, the, the troubles that we're going to face. And every one of those is an opportunity for us to say again, okay, do I, do I believe this? Do I believe Jesus? Yes, I do. And I hit my knees and I say, God, you said my kids will be powerful in the land. Would you make good on that promise? I'm praying what you're saying. You said it, and now I'm going to pray it. 
Lord, we, we're, we're trying to steward our finances as best we can, but we're coming up short. But you said that, the, that those who fear you will lack no good thing. You said it, and I'm going to pray it. I'm taking you at your word. And so as we look at the promises of God, the fear of the Lord is an invitation, as I said last week, to stay in the process. God, we're, we're growing, and I'm trusting you to do it. Whatever he says, we can pray it, all right? So with that, I want us just to bow our heads together, and I'm going to ask Phil and the team to come back up. We're not going to have communion today. I'm just curious if maybe one of those promises, if you're honest with yourself, it just feels like a pipe dream. It just feels like a million miles away from you right now. Maybe you're just really unhappy right now. You're just down. But you're reading that. And it says, happy is the one who fears the Lord. Maybe you're looking at your family and your kids and your grandkids. And you see this about your descendants and your, your offspring. And a godly legacy just feels like a million miles away from you right now. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel stressed financially. You're just... You're in need. And you read this about provision and it feels like it's not true. Maybe there's this aspect of eternal impact and you feel like nothing you do matters to God. Maybe it's confidence. Maybe you are just, you've, you've been full of fear and you read this and you're like, really? Those who fear the Lord, they, they, their heart is confident, and that feels false to you. Or maybe it's wisdom, and you literally have no idea what to do right now in your life, and you're like crying out, God, please show me, please show me. You said that, that, that this was the beginning of wisdom, that we would have good sense and good judgment, and God, like, where are you right now? What I want to invite you into before the Lord is the tension of that process. And I just want you in the, in the sanctuary of your own soul to be like the woman who brought her expensive perfume to the feet of Jesus. And she broke it open and she spent it all on him. And she wept and she washed his feet with her hair. I just want to invite you to break open that thing before God and to lay it at his feet and to say, thank you for saving me. Would you please do this in my life? Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance Church Sermon Podcast. To support our work, you can like, share, subscribe, or you can donate at rin-church.org.